Every day your mercies are new and how we count on that. This is a new year and a new day. It's a new year and we're a new creation. I pray you'll help us to understand this this morning. Not only are we new, but you are making all things new. And this is great news. And it's all because of the work of Christ and his sacrificial love. Instruct us now as we look into your word. Two men went to a junkyard, each to find a car they could make new. The first man picked out a red car that had been in a terrible wreck. It was twisted and rusted, but he realized immediately that it was a fancy sports car. He would take this car home and restore it like new. He loaded the car up on his flatbed and carried it home. The car was so happy to be wanted again. The man pounded out the dents, straightened the frame, repaired the broken parts, sanded, polished, and repainted. The car felt important once again, and she looked great, at least on the outside. The other man picked out a car that was so badly damaged and burned that he could not tell what color she was. The car was excited that someone was even looking at her, and she was overwhelmed when the man said he would take her. She was thinking she must be really important. She felt even more important when she realized that she wasn't just going to his home, but she was going to a factory. I will be fully restored, she thought. However, when they arrived, she was grabbed by two big claws, loaded onto a conveyor belt. And then to her horror, she realized that the conveyor belt was about to drop her into a roaring furnace. There was no escaping. The doors to the furnace opened, and in she went. I'm not getting fixed, she said. I'm being annihilated. It was too late. She went from being a twisted wreck to being a puddle of molten metal. All of her impurities were burnt off. The heap she used to be was now completely dead. What needed improvement was gone. The next thing she knew was that she was being poured into a set of forms. The forms would be the framework of an elegant limousine, and as the molten metal conformed to the new shape, another mold was placed over her and she was joined together. The extreme pressure to join them was painful, but subsided as soon as she cooled down. She had died and resurrected as a completely new automobile. I am still here, she thought, but now I live because of the one who chose me out of the junkyard. I am brand new, a new creation. I have a new future. Now it turns out that these two men were brothers. And they met up at the next family gathering. They both brought their cars. The limousine ran perfectly at top performance. How could she not? She was a brand new creation. The other car, well, you have to give the owner credit for trying. But it barely made it to the family reunion. It kept having to be fixed on the way there. It looked really good on the outside, but no matter how hard he worked on her, he could never get her quite right. She was just a fixed-up version of her past. The limousine was nothing like her past. She was a new creation, bright and glorious, and ready to operate at peak condition. I'm thankful to Christ Life Ministries for allowing me to adapt that allegory for today's sermon. What would you rather be, restored or made brand new? If we were restored, what would we be restored to? 
that would mean that we were okay at some point in the past. Or is there some thought that we would be restored to what Adam and Eve were like? Well, that doesn't feel like a great option either because they disobeyed. And frankly, I don't think I would be any different. Our only hope is to be made brand new. It's the only way we will be acceptable to God. The second car in this allegory was considered dead by its owner. She didn't know it, but the owner did. Likewise, God considered us dead as well. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, we were dead to God because we were living in bondage to our sins. What can a dead person do? Hang on a minute. How can a dead person respond to the call of the living God? A dead person can do nothing. Our only hope is to be made new. Our main passage for today comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is encouraging the believers who have been scattered throughout Asia. However, the context of what he is saying actually applies to all believers as we are aliens regardless of what earthly country we reside in. As I read this, listen to the work that God is doing and how we are responding. Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Paul writes in our first verse, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Let's stop there for a moment. We see Peter praising God. Well, what is he praising God for? First, his mercy. That mercy is the motivation behind us being born again. Peter uses the same root word as that found in John chapter 3, where Jesus says, you must be born again. This is a birth we cannot bring about ourselves any more than we could bring about our physical birth. God must do the new work in us. It is a creating work. In fact, other places in the Bible, we are referred to as a new creation, implying that the same creating power God used in creating the world was used to make us new again. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are not a restored version of our past, as if there were something to restore. We're not even an improved version of our past. We are a new creation because of this new birth. We have a new name, a new identity. Our past identity no longer defines us. The world's labels and diagnoses no longer define us. God now defines us. 
Can we see ourselves as God sees us? Can we see others as new creations as well? Let's take a look at how God describes this work of the new creation. First, the new creation starts with a new covenant. You can trace this new covenant all the way back to, the found, to before the foundation of the world. It is a covenant among the Trinity, often referred to as the covenant of redemption. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1, where he describes us as being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Jeremiah describes this new covenant in chapter 31, where God says he will make a new covenant with Israel, and it will not be like the one they had before. And then Jesus Jesus initiates this covenant during the Passover meal, as he describes it in Matthew chapter 26, and it's what we celebrate every week. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. So we see the new covenant has to do with the forgiveness of sins. Why sins? Well, going back to Ephesians chapter 2, we find the answer if we read a little bit farther. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Again, we see the mercy of God and the love of God as the motivation behind this creating act. We are made alive together with Christ. This is simply another way of saying we are a new creation or we are born again. Now we see that the new covenant produces forgiveness of sins and the bringing to life from the dead. What has to happen to us to be made alive? We must have a new heart, and God gives us a heart transplant. Ezekiel describes this in chapter 36, and he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." Now, the third part of us is a new self. We have a new heart made alive by the Spirit, which results in this new self, and with that comes new and holy passions. Colossians 3 talks about this new self in contrast with our old self. Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on, then, as God's Chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All of this is summarized under the one new command that Christ gave us in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The last aspect of new creation I want to cover is our eternity. He is preparing us for eternity with him. We will be in his presence where there will be fullness of joy. John writes about this new place in Revelations 21. I recommend you go read that, where he describes this new heaven and new earth that is being prepared for those whose faith is in Christ. In this passage, he says he is making all things new. Let me repeat, he is making all things new. Keep this thought in the back of your mind. The fact that he is making all things new means that not everything 
is fully new yet. But also remember that he is not restoring us to the garden. It will be better than the garden. The world will be new. We will be new in body, mind, heart, spirit, and passions. And we will be in his presence in ways never experienced before. All of this ushered in because of God's mercy through the sacrificial blood of Christ, which began the whole renewing process. So all of this sounds really great, doesn't it? There's just one problem with all that I have said. If all of this is true, why don't I always feel like a new creation? And especially, why don't I act like the new creation that I am? I see the chaos and suffering in the world around me. I see my own failing health and those I love. And I see my own sin. If I'm a new creation... Why don't I always feel like it, and why don't I always act like it? And I think there's at least two reasons for this. Reasons we accept to see our, why we fail to accept to see ourselves as new creations. Simply put, we suffer and we still sin. One author, Michael Emlett, describes our condition like this. We are saints, sufferers, and sinners, all in one. We suffer in many ways. The world around us is a world that is falling apart. The fall of Adam affected both our material world as well as the morality of the world. Both are decaying. We see earthquakes, storms, and loss of life because of natural disasters. But we also see wars and persecution. We see how easily one side is stirred up against another. And we can see this influence even in the church. We see man's sinful condition and the influence of Satan, the ruler of this world. Not only is the world in bondage to corruption, but so are our physical bodies. I know this personally as I've gotten older. I see the effects of disease in myself. I can see it in others around me, some who are diseased well before their time. Either way, I can see and feel the slow decline in my physical capabilities, endurance, and energy. I am winding down. I don't feel like a new creation. But I think the other main reason we may struggle to see ourselves as a new creation is even harder yet. It's our own sin. This is the most discouraging aspect of all. As I get older, I see that I still struggle with sin. In fact, I see more sin in me now than I did 10 years ago. If I'm a new creation, why don't I act like the new creation God has made me to be? Fortunately, this is not the end of the story. Our passage in 1 Peter doesn't end without giving some explanations, almost as if he anticipated some of our questions and objections. So let's look at these issues from God's perspective. And there are four reasons for hope as we start the new year. So far this morning, we have looked at the first part of verse 3 from 1 Peter about being a new creation. He goes next to where we need to go. With hope. Not just hope, but a living hope. Let's look at these verses again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First, let's look at our own condition. We are born again, it says. We are a new creation. Someone newly born is not yet mature. We have everything in us 
as a new child to become everything that God has planned for us. But we are not there yet. So the fact is, we still sin. This really shouldn't surprise us. The sinful nature did not go away when God made us alive with his spirit. We now have two natures, two natures that are at war within. Remember, we are new, but he is making us new. However, before we just had the sin nature, and that controlled us. But now our new nature has the upper hand. Our relationship to sin has completely changed. It is no longer master over us. Its rule over us was defeated on the cross by Christ. He has set us free. David Pallison, in his, in, uh, his book on grace and your suffering, says it this way. Christians, as new creations in Christ, live in an essentially different relationship to their own sinfulness. Your sin now afflicts you. The dross no longer defines or delights you. Indwelling sin becomes a form of significant suffering. You wanted to do it at the time, but you don't really want to. That is, when you come to your senses, you commit sin, but you are more committed to the Lord because he is absolutely committed to you. One of my favorite verses, when I begin to doubt what God is doing in my life, is Philippians 1.6. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He is doing that work. That that new creation work has begun. So this is our first hope. The seed of this hope is us being born again. It is a living hope, as Peter says. It is living because the Holy Spirit is living in us. The seed of the Holy Spirit in us has all of the DNA needed to bring us to maturity in Christ. It cannot fail because God's purposes don't fail. The second hope comes out of our suffering. I'm going to jump to verses 6 and 7, and we'll come back to 4 and 5 later. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And that's... um, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter uses the word trials. My professor I had last summer defined this word as pressure-filled circumstances. It is a broad term. It can include any type of temptation, adversity, or suffering we may experience. And we suffer for a variety of reasons. We suffer because of sins committed against us. We suffer under the weight of our own sin. We suffer because our bodies are fallen. All of us are victims in one or more of these categories. Some of us live with chronic pain, some with diseases, some with disabilities. Some of us live with the memories of abuse from our past. Some of us live under oppression, and some of us live under the consequences of our sin. Regardless of the reason... God has given us ample reasons for hope in the midst of it. This passage finds deep hope in the loving sovereignty of God. At the high level, Peter is telling us that suffering has a purpose first. The words so that in this passage tells us that God is not disconnected from our trials. 
They express purpose, and he has a design for them. In simple terms, they are to build up and confirm our faith. The confirming of our faith requires that it is tested. This is what proves to us and to the world that we are his. The faith that is produced is more valuable than gold and will never perish even in the midst of the worst suffering. I want to describe three reasons for hope in the midst of trials. That is, pressure-filled circumstances. Know first that God is the cause. He may not be the acting agent, as in the case of Job, but nothing is outside of his control, permission, and sovereign purpose. This may be a troublesome thought at first. However, it is not without compassion. This is one of those difficulties in understanding the sovereignty of God and the perfection of his purposes for us. Lamentations chapter 3 Jeremiah writes, Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to his abundant love, for he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. I see I have a different translation up there. One thing I've realized in my own suffering is that if God is not in control, then I really do have something to worry about. Second, suffering is designed to help us keep our dependence on God and our eyes on Christ. It is, I'll just make an aside here. It is also designed to help us link up, depend on with one another too, and form that community. But first, as we look at suffering, especially now, remember Christ's sufferings. John Piper describes it this way. Everything, everything that Christ accomplished for us sinners, he accomplished by suffering. This season of Advent is a good time to ask why to suffering, not to our own suffering, but Christ's. Why would the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, come to earth to suffer for us? Well, the Bible gives us the answer, which is an amazing one, for the joy set before him, his joy, and for love, his love for us. As we ponder these things, hopefully we can see that the universe is no longer supremely about us. But even so, David Pallison reminds us that we are still not irrelevant. But God's story makes us just the right size. Then we can ask, if Christ's suffering showed God's glory to the world, as we suffer, will not our suffering do the same? Scripture tells us why we can rejoice in our sufferings. It is because we fill up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. This is a strange concept, but as the world sees us suffer with hope, we become lights to a dark world, and we become a source of encouragement to others who are suffering, and this brings great glory to God. Third, one aspect of our suffering is dying to our self that is in bondage to sin. That old self, which was crucified with Christ, Christ tells us to take up our cross daily, Johnny Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed in a diving accident as a teen, explains taking up her cross this way. Please know that when I take up my cross every day, I am not talking about my wheelchair. My cross is not my wheelchair. It is my attitude. Any complaints, any grumblings, any disputings or murmurings, any anxieties, any worries, any resentments, or anything that hints of a raging torrent of bitterness... These are the things God wants me to die to daily. 
She goes on to say, when you meet suffering on God's terms, you will also meet joy on God's terms. Two great things occur when we meet suffering on God's terms. As we've already said, we share in Christ's sufferings. And two, this is what God uses in our life to make us like him. This is the meaning of James 1, where he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience various trials. He tells us the purpose of this, so that you may be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. That is, to be made like Christ. What I see Johnny and James both saying, and I am recognizing more and more in me, is that my problem, at least the one I think I have, often really isn't my problem. The real problem is what I believe about God and myself as a result of the problem. If we look back at the allegory of the second wreck, we realize that we are still in the blast furnace being refined. We haven't been poured into the mold just yet. So as we look at these three things, reasons for hope in the midst of our suffering. Suffering is under God's sovereignty. Suffering with hope brings light to a dark world and glory to God. And suffering comes with a purpose to make us mature in Christ. There is a fourth reason yet to come that's even better, and we will see that in the next verses. There are two parts of hope in these verses, a now part and a future part. Listen to the picture that Peter paints here. It says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're going to look at the future part first. We are partakers in an inheritance. What is this inheritance? It is a new heaven and a new earth. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It is waiting for us. It is being guarded by our faith, which is protected by God's power. It is the assurance of our salvation. It is his presence forever. Though we know his presence now, we will know him then face to face. This is our future hope. Peter tells us to keep our hope fixed on the grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. All I can say is that has to be a lot of glory as I consider the deep suffering that many have experienced. I think especially of those with long-term chronic illness and disability, those who have suffered terribly at the hands of others, like those ministered to by Garden Gate. The glory must be beyond anything I can imagine, but I do think God wants us to try. Now I want to come back to kind of where we are now in our current, current condition. We have said that we are saints, sufferers, and sinners. As we come into 2022, we can be certain that we will face all kinds of uncertainties, suffering and sin. God knows this. He states one command that is given more than any other in the Bible, according to author and counselor Edward Welch. It is, do not be afraid. It is either implied or stated over 300 times in the Bible. Often what follows this command are the words, For I am with you. 
Peter implies this in these verses when he says that we are being guarded by God's power. If someone is a guard, he cannot stand aloof or be off in the distance. He has to be by our side going through what we are going through. To guard us, God has to be with us in every intimate detail of our lives. He is not just a bystander or an observer, but completely involved. He is protecting us, encouraging us, teaching us, correcting us, comforting us. He may do this directly and or through others. One of my favorite verses I lean on a lot is Hebrews 13.5. The author quotes God from Deuteronomy. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A couple short verses in the Bible that give us all kinds of hope. As 2022 comes your way, be ready to listen to God, to to listen to what God is saying in your circumstances and suffering. He doesn't want you to be the same a year from now that you are now. He wants you are new, and he is making you new. When God makes us a new creation, he plants hope in us. It is like the fertilizer of our faith. Hope in the midst of our sin, hope in the midst of our suffering, and hope in a glorious future, a future that is assured because God is with us from the beginning to the end. So by God's grace, may 2022 be your best year ever as you hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your loving sovereignty. You have made us new and you are making us new. We have all the spiritual DNA to be a pleasing child. You've created us that way. We are newly born. We are growing in you and our knowledge of you. And more importantly, you are growing in us so that we are more like Christ. In our process of growth, help us to cling to the promises and hope that you give us. Most of all, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Not in our suffering and not even in our sin. So may our faith grow in you this year. You have begun the good work and you will complete it. We cannot praise you enough. Amen.